Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to On Brand with Alf and me, Rory Sutherland. Each month, I'll be talking to household names as well as challenger brands about success, challenges, and future opportunities in the advertising, media, and marketing industries. Alf Insight is the UK's leading business development platform for the advertising and marketing industry. And in April, Alf will be celebrating the UK's leading marketing and sales brands. Sales teams are at the heart of every business's success, and the Alf Awards 2023 offers the opportunity to showcase your team's achievements, as well as network with peers. Award categories include Best Agency Startup, Best New Business Team, Best Partnership, Rising Star in Media Sales, and BD100's Business Developer of the Year. Entries are open until the 13th of January. Simply visit www.alfawards.com for more details. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Marcia Kilgore. Marcia has been described, and I think in this case very, very accurately, as a serial entrepreneur, having successfully launched brands such as Bliss Spa, Soap and Glory, which sold to Boots, and Fitflop. Her most recent creation is Beauty Pie, a brand that's disrupting the premium beauty market. So I'm delighted that she's here to tell us more. So Marcia, first of all, huge welcome to the podcast, and secondly, you know, a fair degree of awe and respect. My wife is eternally grateful to you for your creation of the FitFop brand because she had some sort of interesting back trouble, which this completely solved. So um, she's next door, but she, if, if she were in the room, she'd be uh, bowing down in gratitude. So you've launched these fantastic ideas already and you describe Beauty Pie as your best idea yet. Tell us the story behind its origins. So uh, the beauty industry, I've been in it for 30 years now and started out doing cosmetic chemistry, giving facials. Um, And then I opened a spa business, which uh, also sold to LVMH in 1999, but we were always selling other people's products. And um, when I started to create products under my own brand name, so as Bliss at that point, and then under Soap and Glory, what I learned was the distribution system in beauty is really quite egregious in terms of how it takes the cost of goods or the actual cost of goods of a beauty product and multiplies it by 12, 15, 20 times before a woman or a man uh, will buy that product on a shelf. Um, And I don't think there are many other industries, you know, maybe pet food, uh, where you have that kind of egregious markup. Um, But I always was quite uncomfortable with it, but uh, because you had to always value engineer products 
backwards. You had to always try and take the good stuff out. You had to remove active ingredients in order to, to be able to hit that cost of goods target. And for me, it was just not very inspiring, uh, trying to make a retailer more money, trying to get that markup in there by disadvantaging the customer. And after I sold my last business, which was Soap and Glory, which was more of a mastige business to Walgreens Boots, I thought, you know what? What is a different way to do this now? What had happened in the industry um, was there was a lot of consolidation. You have Sephora, which has its own incubator inside it. So all those new brands that you see in Sephora, many of them Sephora actually own, manufacture. They've got that full vertical margin. Um, the same with Boots. They have an incubator. So there's a little bit of what you might call TK Maxx there. Yes, where they're manufacturing their own stuff. So, so you have the halo effect of the established brands, and then you create brands of your own. Which you give the best shelf space to, of course, right? So all of the um, all of the, the smaller brands who used to be the creators, so you would have this ecosystem previously where the creators would create the brands and they would create the content for the brands and come up with the, all the ideas, and they would sell those brands to retail who would then mark them up. Um, you got into a place where there were these two monopolies or, a, you know, probably more than two. Uh, Sephora, I think, being one of them and, you know, Boots Walgreens certainly in the UK and, and US being another, where they would make their own, but they would use the smaller brands for foot traffic, but not necessarily give the smaller brands the same airtime. And so as a smaller brand, there was really no way to thrive um, because you would, you would, be there, but you would always be disadvantaged. And you see, it's funny enough, that's a recurring pattern, isn't it? So you mentioned you couldn't think of any categories other than pet food, which had the same level of kind of markup. I suppose sunglasses and the role of Luxottica would be another parallel, wouldn't it? Where essentially what started as a bunch of independent brands, some of them specialist brands, get mopped All up. got rolled up. Yeah. Yes. And then you have Warby Parker. Of course. Right. Which is the disruptor. Who comes in and case. says, hey. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so I guess inspired by someone like a Warby Parker and also uh, by brands like an Everlane who started to do the same thing in clothing, uh, I thought, you know, it is ridiculous. Women are paying way too much for their products. Certainly there are still costs involved. A, you want to do a beautiful product that actually works, right? We also at the same time have uh, the, the problem of landfill. Right. And the way the old model works, you have to make you know hundreds of thousands of samples and you're sampling product that isn't necessarily any good because it's product that you're making to the lowest cost of goods possible. And so people will end up buying it, not necessarily using it. And so you have this sort of circle that continues that isn't optimizing for uh, you know the ecology. It isn't optimizing for value and efficiency and and for loyalty um, with the customer actually buying something and then wanting to buy it again and again and again, because it's actually a great product that is efficacious, delivers results and is affordable. And so I thought, you know, I know now we've got ways to reach our customers that we didn't when I started out. Of course, you've got all of the social media platforms. You've got the ability to do live shopping online. You've got, of course, e-commerce. And I know every great lab or probably 90% of the best scientists in labs who produce third party for all of the big brands, whether it's cosmetics or skincare or vitamins or hair care, fragrance, they're all the same. We all use, we all go to the same suppliers in the beauty industry. And there are, you know, exceptional premium luxury quality products 
and then you've got premium and then you've got kind of mass and you know everywhere in between so you can go to them and they will manufacture for you you hear these stories about brands having this exclusive blah 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 and it's from you know this particular or their particular lab and most of the time i'd say 99 of the time it's not true because we're all going to the same providers they're all producing for all of all of our brands and I thought, wouldn't it be great? I was actually, there were two points of inspiration for starting Beauty Pie. One was me being in an airport in Hong Kong. I was heading to Dongguan to work on a, a range of flip-flop shoes. And um, I remember having forgotten my moisturizer and going to the duty-free shop to just buy a trusted moisturizer. So something I knew was from a good brand. Actually, a friend of mine had worked for that brand. She'd sent me some freebies before. And I hadn't bought my own cosmetics for a very, very long time, 20 years probably, because labs will send you boxes of product and you test them. And then they hope for you to buy them in some form from them. Labs do most of the work, in fact. And then you can add ingredients in to make them more efficacious or more anti-wrinkle or more brightening or what have you. So I go over to the shelf of this brand that I, I know and trust in the Hong Kong airport, and the cheapest moisturizer was 150 US dollars. And I thought, are you kidding me? <laughs> so I'm not paying $150 for that. It's got to cost $5 to make. I'm not doing it. And I just could not bring myself to buy a product at the retail price. And so that kind of, you know, planted a seed because I thought, why? Why should anybody be buying moisturizer that costs five bucks to make, including the beautiful jar, including the packaging and the, you know, everything for 150 bucks? And then I was also in the Milan train station coming back from a show and tell because these labs also will do these days where you go and they show and tell. So here are the formulas we've been working on for the last year take a look at them and you leave with a big bag of samples and you know the street value of the product over your shoulder is you know $5000 you know you've got a, a tote bag full of cosmetics that if you walked into a Sephora would cost you $5000 and i remember walking to my catch my train i was going from italy to switzerland to another lab and thinking oh my god if all the women i knew could just come here with me and get all this stuff it's so much more affordable it's like being a kid in a candy store and women generally, we buy a lot of cosmetics, right? We don't think we do. People, if you poll the average woman, she's going to say, oh, I spend $20 a month. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Between your hair color and your shampoo and your conditioner and your whatever, you're spending hundreds. And if you could take 60, 70% of that cost away because you're not paying for the retailer markups and you're not paying for all those distribution layers, wouldn't that be fabulous? So the idea of beauty pie was born around get a bigger piece of the beauty pie. I was going to ask. Yes, that's it. And, you know, it's funny because not everybody understands it. That's what it is, is get a bigger piece of it, right? So, you know, reducing that interference, all of the irrelevant layers now um, and selling direct to customers for just a whole lot less. Um, and it's been a smashing success. It was harder at the beginning just because I think there is price quality inference that we still have to get over. People see the prices and they think, are you kidding? It can't possibly be good if it's this inexpensive. But that educating the customer about how much all of those layers of distribution add on. I mean, contrary to standard economic theory, it can be surprisingly difficult to disrupt a market by being cheaper. Because of that inference, I remember talking to a, a large online sofa company and their problem was they sold $3,000 or £3,000 sofas for £1,000. Now, 
You could disrupt the market as IKEA, or you could disrupt the market as one of the low-cost providers by selling sofas, which we'd assume would cost £1,000 for £300, which people could absolutely see, gosh, that's a lot cheaper than I'd expect to pay. But of course, it's difficult to tell the difference between a £3,000 sofa and a £1,000 sofa. And so when you reduce the price of a £3,000 sofa to £1,000, people didn't go, gosh, I'm saving £2,000. They just thought, okay, it's a £1,000 sofa. And so you can have, I suppose it all comes down to L'Oreal's Because I'm Worth It, which is... Which is the most genius line ever. It is ever. utter genius, yes. absolute genius. Yeah, which is the price quality heuristic, which, by the way, is kind of true in that you do get more when you pay more what's extraordinary about it is the multiplier the law of diminishing returns i suppose when you get to the top end and i guess the question is like in the case of l'oreal right every i mean everyone in the industry knows that they're selling exactly the same product in a different box at premium and at mass and therefore do you get more what is the more i guess more ego massaging right Uh, yes i mean one has to say that I'm not the biggest marketing moralist out there, but a lot of marketing now plays a trick on consumers to the extent that I think it's not an unreasonable assumption if you buy a pair of X jeans, that the company itself both designs, manufactures and does the quality control for that product. Now, it's probably fair to say that good brands still do the quality control to a degree. Okay, so if you buy a a well-branded cosmetics product, it's less likely to give you a hideous rash or to have some a significant downside. They still worry about quality control. But consumers are still assuming that, you know, Ray-Ban make Ray-Ban, you know, that that in other words, there is an independent standalone entity, which is both designing and doing its own science and doing its own innovation. And in many ways, that's actually, we're kind of pulling the wool over people's eyes, because in many cases, it's simply, the innovation is performed independently, and someone is simply sourcing something and banging a badge on it. Now, the brand still has a value because obviously you're not going to source something that's obvious rubbish. But in terms of actually providing a guarantee of superiority or uniqueness, which people still assume, I don't think that promise is necessarily being delivered. No, it certainly isn't. But it will be in semantics. Yeah. Right. So it's it's the uniqueness comes by semantics. So it's how you describe it. We can all, and it's a great example, we all buy an eyeshadow crayon from a leading Italian lab. And I can list, I could list 25 other brands that you can walk into Selfridges and get exactly that same eyeshadow crayon for retailing for anywhere from 25 pounds to 65 pounds, exactly the same product. And we all then perhaps present it in different ways. It is in a different color package, but it is bought and all of the R&D And the innovation is actually done by that third-party manufacturer who sells their innovation to as many people as they can. As they can, of course. So, yes, because they have to amortize that R&D as well, which one can understand. But you still have to have the dream, right? So everyone wants to think that they are unique and everyone wants to think they're, they're getting a product that perhaps is better than the product that someone else might have. And therefore, we have to continually present items as being... So how confident were you that you could persuade people? Because obviously part of this business model wouldn't allow you to do sort of highly expensive advertising, Vogue, airports, etc. Yes, Uh, yes. That's one thing you couldn't do. How confident were you that you could persuade people to look past that and to buy your new offer? In other words, the assumption would be that people would look to what was stocked by Selfridges, what was stocked by Harrods. They would also look to expensive 
you know, premium media for clues as to what was a premium brand. How confident were you that you could get a significant number of people to actually go beyond that and actually say, no, I'm going to game the system here? At the beginning, of course, you know, you, I, I normally will start a brand by thinking, would I buy from that brand? Or if someone presented that to me, is that something I would want? And then I, you know, I'll chew it around for a while. And I'll think about it and measure how excited I still am after a couple of months about this idea. And this was one of the ones that I was very, very excited about, just knowing what the quality of the products out there were and how much better we'd be able to make products for customers and how much more loyal they would become once they tried them. So I think I was relatively confident at the beginning. But it's certainly once we went into business and it wasn't helped by a sort of hampered tech platform that we had. We had quite a terrible tech interface. So explaining this to people was quite difficult. And I think that's where the hardest part was when we launched. I think I thought immediately, you know, Vogue wrote a two-page article about us and it was, you know, us disrupting the business. That should open so many doors. You should have thousands of people rushing to your website. But it was so difficult to shop our website at the beginning that I think the first night when I thought, okay, we're going to have thousands, right? Thousands of customers. I think there were 60. It was tough. It was tough because you had invested not only in all that inventory, because of course we had to buy, you know, tremendous amounts of inventory to get those same low prices that you get when you are a buyer's club and being able to pass those along. That was our promise. So we had to buy X number of SKUs at 5,000 or 10,000 each. And so we were sitting on a lot of inventory. Inventory will also expire after a period of time because it's not like fresh food, obviously, but cosmetics do have a, a shelf life. And we had to, at the same time, work up our tech platform um, to ensure that we were able to explain the story, which is quite a long form story. Uh, people don't just believe, here's the price, but you can get it for this. You have to tell them how. And you have to tell them why. It's funny, I always make the point about low-cost airlines that they almost needed a story about where you were saving money before people could trust them. So oddly, what low-cost airlines did is they almost magnified the things that you didn't get. You didn't get a meal. You didn't get pre-allocated seating originally, although they backtracked on that. You didn't get free checked-in luggage and so on and so forth. And they had to do that to explain where the saving was taking place. Because otherwise, you'd always assume that it was, you know, worst trained pilots. You were going to crash. You were going to crash. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. they were always low cost airlines before they were low cost airlines, but they they never got across their story, which is not this is a cheaper version of a conventional airline. They never created that story. This is a different way to fly, and I think that's why it is difficult. And also, of course, you have the subscription model. Uh, so it is, just to clarify, it's a membership model. Oh, membership so model. We, yeah, yeah right. so we don't actually send anything to you unless you order it. And membership gives you access to the prices, more like a Costco in America, yes. right, than us sending you boxes of things, which I thought was really important also to differentiate us because there are a lot of boxes, you know, beauty boxes out there. And they... Uh, by, by the way, it's a distinction which... Uh, the consumer needs to understand better as well as business. So there is subscription where you pay in a set amount of money, but you decide what you buy, which would be the well, Nespresso model, for example. Exactly. You pay a certain amount, you get a discount, but you don't order anything unless you want it. Yes. Then there's exactly. the kind of default selling model where you get things that you've forgotten you ordered. Okay. Yes. And, and then, then it just comes and you club. have the box stacked up in the... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And then there's, and then the, there's the, the, the yeah. access club, right? So you get to come in and shop at these prices if you have a membership. 
And most of our most of our members save their annual membership fee in their first order. So it is a bit of a no-brainer. And we just continually source product from all over the world, whether it's you know French fragrances by the finest noses who work for you know the leading fragrance houses or Swiss and Japanese skincare from the you know, the same people who make for La Prairie or, you know, happen to make for Shiseido. So we've got the same scientists working. And then because we, we work from the bottom up, so we will take a skincare product or moisture cream, for instance, and we'll actually build the moisture cream to our specifications using ingredients at the levels that they've been proven to work instead of trying to squeeze them into a price point that doesn't do anything, which is, you know, normally you use 0.001% of particular active ingredient X, just so you can put it on the label. That's, that's beauty. But we will actually take the data sheet and say, this says that it works at 3%. So we need 3% of this in there. And then we'll take it it's synergistic with this ingredient, which works at 2%. So we're going to put 2% of that in there. And then we come up with a price. Yeah, because at 0.01%, you're operating at the level of homeopathy, practically, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. Which homeopathy is actually also very effective because <laughs> placebos are incredibly effective, aren't they? I mean, cosmetics, I mean, the cosmetics industry is in part the sale of placebos and some level of high price or at least some narrative around price and quality needs to be there, I think, in order for it to work. Because it's that old thing about why do people buy premium fashion is the same thing. And to some extent, you're buying it because I'm worth it is so clever because you're you're almost advertising to yourself. I agree. It's not necessarily done for the benefit of the opposite gender or indeed for the same gender, although it's sometimes, you know, there is an element of that in it, you know, that you are actually advertising yourself to other people. But to some extent, it's how it makes you feel about yourself. Now, this was very interesting. I had a mini focus group with a new marketing guy that has just joined my footwear business. And he said, I was in my kitchen last night with six women, my wife and five friends, all of whom are members of Beauty Pie. And of course, he's Mr. You know, on-demand focus group, as all marketing people are. And he said, how did you find out about it? You know, He's working, of course, for my footwear company, but he's you know, obviously very interested in this model. And he said, how did you find out about it? Do you tell friends, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, what a lot of them said to me was, I found out about it from a very, very close friend, but I wouldn't necessarily tell my friends about it because they thought there was a catch. <laughs> now, these are people who have already been members and shopping from us every couple of months, receiving their packages, loving their products, but they were worried about telling other women about it because there must be a catch. It can't really be this good. There must be something that's going to go wrong here. And therefore, I don't want to just tell people because if something goes wrong, I will look stupid. <laughs> and I said, oh my God, how do you get around that? The proof being in the pudding. It's very, very interesting that because personal recommendation, I always remember having this conversation with someone at work about why so many companies don't advertise jobs. They find recruits through personal recommendation. And it isn't optimal in terms of getting the best person it's very reliable in terms of not getting someone who's terrible because no one who's an employee of yours is going to recommend someone who they don't fully believe in. And similarly, personal recommendation of products is a high, you're putting your reputation on the line. You've got a bit of skin in the game in that recommendation because if it proves to be dud, you actually end up looking foolish. Yes, and they thought there was going to be some type of catch. It wasn't that they didn't love the products, or maybe they didn't believe in their own experience. So actually doubting the experience, which then goes to tell you how effective the brainwashing of the beauty industry has been, that people are actually 
We'll try a product that's affordable, but it happens to be from France. It may be exactly the same formula as a French brand that costs seven times more at retail, but just because the price on it isn't stamped, you know, as a very high price, they think mm, maybe this isn't actually good. <laughs> just thought, or, or is, wow. there an element, is there an element where they're keeping it secret as well because of interpersonal rivalry, which is they don't want other people to have the same advantage they do? Is it's that a possible? It's, it's possible. possible. I don't know. Yes. And so how to overcome this is a really interesting challenge for us because one would think that everyone would tell every every friend they had, but perhaps not. If it is really making your skin glowy and dewy and fabulous and you look so great, I guess like uh, people don't necessarily tell their friends if they've gone and had Botox or, or a facelift, right? They just maybe won't want to share their secrets in terms of why, why their skin is looking so radiant. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Two challenges brought to you by Alf Insight. Alf Insight helps media owners, agencies, and marketing services providers improve their new business pipelines by equipping them with in-depth insights, accurate information, and daily news updates on the leading and challenger brands in the UK. Alf now also helps sports clubs, venues, and charities win new partnership deals. Alf Insight identifies brands to target at the right time providing everything you need to tailor the perfect pitch. Visit www.alfinsight.com or click the link in the episode description if you want to find out more. So what would you say is Beauty Pie's biggest challenge, but also what's the biggest challenge facing the wider beauty retail industry, do you think? Beauty Pie's biggest challenge, I think, is still price quality inference. Looking at those prices and thinking, could this possibly be good Um, when we've all been brainwashed for so long to think that more equals better? For the beauty industry, I think the biggest challenge at the moment is uh, proliferation. So it is so easy. The barrier to entry to be a beauty brand is very low. You can go to a contract manufacturer, order 10,000 cheap shower gels or cheap lipsticks that maybe cost a dollar each. They may not have much quality, but with those 10,000 lipsticks, you can start broadcasting on social media. You can do everything that the big brands do. 
which makes social media prices higher. Your Instagram, your Facebook become the new landlords. We're trying to get away from having to pay for retail or having to pay a huge percentage to a retailer to display your product. And now what you have to do is pay that same cut to a retailer or to Instagram or, or Facebook to display your product. So it's about getting around that. I think uh, there'll be a big consolidation in the beauty industry simply because people will not be able to afford digital marketing. And you see lots of small brands starting up and, and shutting down quite quickly simply because of the numbers that go into that. If you don't have a recurring customer, so someone who comes back to you without having to pay for that customer to return, which of course is part of our model, then you are in deep water at the moment. Funnily enough, I think the membership model is something which, first of all, it, it, it allows you to escape that. So the gravitational pull of basically, as you said, A, the problem of no barriers to entry and increasing competition combined with an increasingly um, uh, vedal uh, kind of media uh, problem. The beauty of this membership model is it effectively, you only need to sell once, in a sense. Yes. That's the yes. And as long as you deliver the goods, right? If the quality is high... If people love the experience of opening it, that box, they feel, you want her to feel that gasp when she opens the box open, that pink box of ours that she's so excited to open it. And then she really uses those products to the bottom of, you know, the bottom of the jar. So one advantage to you is not only digital media, but, but presumably social media promotion, because if you are a brand which, for obvious reasons, can't spend on advertising to the extent of its competitors, yes, or at least can't spend on the kind of advertising that competitors engage in, one fairly obvious positioning is best kept secret. I mean, how do you mostly reach new customers, I guess? That's the first question. Without asking you to give away trade secrets. Well, about your yeah, it's, I think it's what lots of people are doing. I mean, certainly we have social media followings. Um, we do a lot of, of live streaming, talking about product and, you know, what the product will do for you. So it's, you know, your features and benefits right, in a, a very um, conversational way. Um, with our community and with new followers. And then, of course, we do what's quite effective for everyone on, on social media and a lot of digital brands is if your product has a before and after effect that's visible, right? you can have someone using it in a very short social ad online saying, look, <laughs> look at this before and look at this after. And people will come flocking if they can really see a difference in you know whether it's an under eye circle or uh, uh, lines and wrinkles that have been moisturized and, I guess, puffed up by a fantastic humectant mask or something like that. So we do quite a lot of that as well. And then, of course, we look to uh, to our members to recommend other members and other forms of advertising, but not too many, because, of course, advertising would increase our prices, and that goes against our, our price promise. I mean, one place I imagine this is, you know, I, I'm fairly sure from what I've heard, you don't make this mistake. Given that you don't have the upstream advertising of other competitors, I have heard that you package things on delivery very beautifully. So you don't skimp on that, um, uh, effectively, the, the purchase experience. I don't think you can. No, as, I agree with no, you. No, yeah. As a beauty company, one of the first things that we worked on was how do you deliver that fairy tale? She orders, and if she is suspect, when it arrives, she has this gorgeous pink box and she opens it up and there's gorgeous, and everything is recyclable. Maybe made sure not to use foil or gloss or anything that's going to stop something from being easily recyclable or reusable. So we're super mindful and have been since the beginning as well our packaging. So we will use packaging that is as recyclable as you can source at the moment, right? There isn't uh, everything in the cosmetics industry, unfortunately, it's lagging a little bit behind in terms of recyclability, but we keep things to, you know, one type of plastic, 
so you don't have many layers of plastic. So a tube, for instance, can be easily recyclable. We use PCR in all of our packaging, but then what we make sure we do is we make the typography beautiful. So for us, it's not about having a shiny gold, you know, heavy cap, sirlin topped, whatever. We do a, a very simple, beautiful plastic tube, and then the typography is the drum beat. And we make sure that that's very elevated. So it looks like a minimalist elevated design. And if we stray from that, customers will comment and say that their OCD is, you know, really flaring up because this doesn't look, <laughs> they have all their products matching in their bathroom because everything that they have now is from Beauty Pie. So their shelf looks spectacular. But, you know, if the OCD, if something comes in and it's a little bit different, sometimes it does set off a few comments. That's fantastic. And presumably, I'm guessing here, but you do remind people of what they would have paid had they bought this conventionally at the point Always. of delivery. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, at the point of delivery, you know, I haven't actually looked at a delivery point, but we do have. So when you log in, it'll tell you how much you've saved so far. I personally have saved over 40,000 pounds. <laughs> I'm a member. And I so every time you log in, there's a reminder of what your, your aggregate savings to date. This is fantastic. Yes. Yes, Absolutely and then we send idea, on yeah. emails to follow up, you know, just the basic CRM emails. We'll say, this is what you saved on this order, and this is what you saved so far with your membership. So people are, are reminded of the benefits of being a member. And um, you're saying, actually, with the subscription, I agree with you, by the way, we, we've got to be very careful about this word subscription, but with your membership model, um, you're obviously loyalty is key and general growth of customers over time is key. I think I'm right in saying your retention rate is better than that of Spotify or Netflix. Yes. I haven't looked at theirs lately, but when we did our Series B fundraising, and this is the first time I've actually ever done venture capital investment in any business that I've had, they, you know, they compared us to everyone else in order to come up with evaluation for the shares that they were going to be buying and, and, uh, and putting money into. And we were higher than Spotify and Netflix. So our, after a year, we have more than 75% of our people still continuing as members. And after really four or five years, we're just sort of hitting that mark. More than 50% of people who joined five years ago are still members. So it's pretty high, but it takes a lot of work. I think that model, which I, I often call the Amazon Prime model, in other words, you pay once, save many times, is uh, personally, I think it's an absolute, I keep, as a complete sideline, I keep arguing that since we have flexible work, this is what the railways need to introduce to replace the season ticket. In other words, you pay to, you know, if you live just outside London, you pay £400 a year. And in return, you get your rail tickets at half price in proportion to how many you buy. I think the season ticket is a dead duck. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I think it's a very, very beautiful model. By the way, I think it has multiple appeal. I think for some people, part of the appeal is just choice reduction. Yes. Absolutely. Because there are certain areas where there was an onion headline once which said that consumer product diversity now exceeds biodiversity. I can't <laughs> even, right? The paralysis of choice. It's so. There is a paralysis of choice, which is, you know, in other words, there must be an obstacle to people buying cosmetics simply because, and the same must go for women's clothing. I mean, if you go to ASOS, if you type in sort of slingback or whatever, I'm, I'm, yeah, A-line dress. A-line dress. Yeah, you're you're quite likely to get a thousand. Okay. Yeah. And as a bloke, where blokes solve this problem by basically A, not caring very much about clothes, and B, formula. You know, there, there's oh, a sort of Brooks Brothers blokes formula. Blokes are so lucky. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, you know, if you consider, you, know, you go to a wedding, the, the clothing decision for a man is so unbelievably easy compared oh, to... Oh, I know. It's, unfair. <laughs> it's so unfair. It is so unfair. I hate 
having to buy clothing for events. I think it's just such an exhausting drain on your psyche. <laughs> I have to ask this question, by the way, purely out of self-interest. Do you do family membership? We don't because what we started out and we actually had, so when we started, look, we had no idea what we were doing, right? And we, we kind of were trying to figure out how does this work? I mean, what if somebody comes in and buys 60,000 and there's nothing left for anybody else? And so we put, we actually started with limits. Now, this was interesting because we thought, well, that's good psychology, actually. It's very, very to good have, psychology. Yeah. To have Maximum the scarcity of it. Customer. Yeah. Yes. However, we had a sort of an overall limit of how much you were able to buy for for the membership that you were paying. So if you were paying $10 a month, you were able to buy X, right? If you were paying 20, you were able to buy X if you're paying 30. It was interesting because it created a sort of drumbeat of when people would come in and buy. It was like, oh, my allowance just updated. I can go in and shop now. So people were waiting for the day that they could come back in and shop. So it created this sort of excitement. Unfortunately, at the same time, it created the inability for people to get as much as they wanted. But we were doing it because we didn't know, you know, are people going to gray market? Are we going to see people come in, buy a whole bunch of stuff and open a shop on eBay? And then and then do we care if they open a shop on eBay? Because our prices, do we care? I mean, it's all of these thoughts. Normally, you would say, well, you don't want any gray marketing. You don't want people overbuying and giving to their friends. And I was trying to challenge every single thought. What do we care if we are actually the distributor for the labs, right? So normally in beauty, you have the labs, the labs sell to the brands, the brands sell to their distributors, the distributors sell to the retailers, right? Or sometimes you have a distributor, but in a different country. So if you've got a third, you know, a third party running an operation outside of your main territories, they're going to take a chunk. And I would like to be as beautified, the distributor or the sort of Sephora of all the labs, right? You remove two layers and you can sell all of that really good stuff for half, less than half. Um, so people are actually just getting a better deal. Now, whether this can work in that same way at retail, whether we can cover retail rents, do we ever need to be at retail? It remains to be seen. I mean, there will, there will be a point at which to be sort of bar and sharp about this. There is a large percentage of people who probably won't buy online. Yes. There's a percentage of people who are highly averse to recurring payments. Yes. I mean, now, equally, you're a premium brand, so you're, you, you're, not, you're not emphatically going for absolute, not even mastige. It is a prestige brand, isn't it? Oh. Well, it's interesting. We, we came up. That's the thing, too. It's like, well, if you look at who our customers are, and this is super interesting. We, we got some data from, uh, from an American firm who wanted to invest in us. And they said, look at this. You've got this dumbbell, right, where you've got all of the wealthy people. Yeah. And these are the wealthy people who are shopping. They know it's good. They know what good is. They experienced it. They're like, yeah, this stuff is as good as, you know, anything that I've been buying before for four times, five times as much. And we have all of them. But then we also had a huge number of people who weren't necessarily making that much money, but just wanted to trade up. So we coined a term in a, a meeting a, a few days ago, actually, which was maspirational. Yes, but brilliant. <laughs> yeah. The price point is a little higher than mass, right? Not quite premium for members. However, if you don't want to be a member, we actually just opened up as an experiment because we're always A-B testing. We just opened up the ability for people to just come in and shop. You want to come in, you want to shop at regular prices, go ahead. It's still a very fair price and then you can try it before you join. 
Well, you'll save your annual membership on one Swiss anti-aging cream. I think I can guess the brand you're uh, you're hinting at there too. Yeah, it's one that I try to direct my wife away from whenever. Yes, I well, <laughs> she's got her she's got her mecca over here at PewDiePie. This is fantastic. This is absolutely and so so you you have ruled out obviously obviously you've got to reach a certain scale, but physical retail it's always that point that there's a certain number of people who have an aversion, as I said, to re- any kind of recurring commitment. Yes, or they're, they're it's harder to reach. Right. Yes. So, yeah, there's lots of things to test in terms of that recurring commitment. Obviously, if you make it easy to cancel, it's easier. If you give them something right when they join, yes. worth the amount of their membership. Of course. Right. Why not? From then on, they've written off that cost and they don't really see it as a cost anymore. No, exactly. absolutely right. Yeah. That that makes perfect sense. This is actually an incredibly beautiful model, as you said. There's a lot of fun things you can do with it. Costconomics, it ought to be called. Yes, costconomics. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> now, you're only in the UK and the US currently, is At that the right? moment, yes. Unfortunately, we chose a disastrous platform for our software at the beginning. And once we had all of those members already in it, right, it was very hard to unravel. So we've been trying to build a new tech stack which is like a whole area outside of my, I, I'm a face cream formulator. <laughs> so I know more about tech stacks now than I ever wanted to. If I never really had to think about UX and UI again, that might be too soon. <laughs> oh, no, no, it, think about it a lot because it pays off insanely. I know it's painful, but oh, it's so rewarding. painful. It yeah. is very rewarding. Yes. And it's amazing where you just do one little thing and you can see your conversion double. So um, it's fascinating, I think, like at this stage of my career, I've been, you know, selling products to people for so long, and I, you can see patterns. I'm, you know, you're the same. You, you pick it. Oh yes, it's like this one. It's like that one. It's like that. You see these things. They recur. They're being done in a new way, but it's the same old thing. And so for me, just having something that is like so tech heavy and such a new way of reaching the customer, challenging myself, I think, to stay really relevant and current. That's what's in it. And it's also wonderful to be able to communicate with your customers directly which, you know, through those retail distribution points, you don't get to. And now we've got our customers on tap. We can ask them, you know, very valuable. We'll say, hey, everyone, we're thinking of launching four candles. Here are the notes in these candles. Which ones would you buy? And they'll come back and they will tell us. And then if there's a dog in there, we know not to buy 5,000 of that candle, which is really helpful. That's fantastic. You don't make the mistakes. One tip, I was just thinking about your problem of getting member get members, we used to call yes. it American Express. Yeah. One possible tip, and this is an idea I kept trying to get people to adopt, and they never would, which is to use the same idea of scarcity, which is to say, we have a recommendation offer for you, which is reasonably generous both to you and the recommendee, but we limit it to only two people or one person. Now, if you have those programs where you can recommend as many people as you like, it tends to be, oh, God, you know, either people do it indiscriminately, in which case it doesn't work. But if you can actually say, we've, I've only got two of these to give away, and I thought, what do you then get is the person to think of all the hundred or so people they know well, which two people would most appreciate. And so you get an extraordinary level of targeting. Yes. And also the perceived value of the offer goes up when it's actually limited. It's the old maximum four per customer, which we use to sell, funnily enough, um, uh, KFC chips in Australia, maximum four per customer. People eat that many chips? <laughs> well, uh, Australians apparently, yeah. Um, but it, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing. It just, it just creates the idea that this is a disproportionately generous offer. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. We've thought of that because when we started, um, we didn't recognize necessarily all the costs that are inherent to running a competitive scaled D2C business. 
So the discount level that we gave our original members right, is really quite extreme and not necessarily as um, it's not necessarily something that we can continue sustainable. So you don't you don't want to grow at an insane level just in case you need to correct later on, possibly. So those people are kind of those people are kind of grandfathered in, are they? Well, yeah. yeah, So those people are the we call them the OGs. The OGs. (laughs) So people. Yeah. So the first members and these, you know, it's still going. So anybody who joins up until the time probably that they hear this podcast would be an OG. But we are considering like, what is that member's price? Can we continue like that? Now, OGs, they were promised something, they're getting it. We will always have their prices. But we thought, okay, what if an OG was allowed to invite one friend a year? Outside of that, there is a new price for, for new members that is a little bit more sustainable so that we have you know more of the money that we will need to grow because you've got to operate a business uh, eventually, right, that makes money. I mean, we talk about Warby Parker and they were great, amazing what they did, but they've floated, they've gone public and they're nowhere near, you know, they're not going to make money for the next nine years. And I don't want a business like that. I think everybody can benefit. Why is that they're not going to make money, do you think? I think they just need to charge more for their glasses. And people don't buy a pair of glasses that often. You think, well, how often I bought my, I just bought a new pair of glasses. I think before that, the last pair I bought was five, six years ago. So if you're making $100 for a pair of glasses off a customer every six years, you know, that's, there's only so many of those customers. It was the great curse of the Dyson washing machine, wasn't it? Which is that, you know, everybody wanted a Dyson washing machine, but you just don't replace the damn thing. Uh, Yes. It's like a Miele, yeah, or the Miele Hoover. (laughs) Uh, The other one is the the other product, which everybody wants, but nobody gets. The Japanese toilet, which I've got, I finally... You have a Toto? No, it's actually, I've got, nah, it's actually a Jibberie, because the the concept was invented in Switzerland. The Swiss actually invented it. The Japanese effectively then ran with it. Air fryers are like that. I'm I'm very interested in what I call ratchet products, which are products where once you become a convert, it basically reframes your conception of what quality or what, you know, what convenience is so that it's impossible to revert. Yes. Because this is this is what's very interesting about your retention rates. Oh, people cannot go back to buying at retail. Because this is my great argument about electric cars. Everybody talks about what the what the electric car penetration rate is. My point is no no, that's not what you should look at. The fact is that nobody who buys an electric car goes back to gasoline. Exactly. Three percent of people do, but I mean it's tiny. Yes, because A, you feel cheated, right? And then you feel stupid. And then you feel guilty. Absolutely right. You've got it all. Absolutely right. So, <laughs> so I, think, I, think, I think this is what's really interesting about this. And, and in some ways, of course, so you're, you you do have some VC funding. Yeah. So I also at the time, so I, I started on my own dime. I usually start yeah. my businesses on, on my own funding because I think, well, if I don't believe it enough to fund it myself, then this is not good enough. Right. It's a, the perfect litmus test to challenge yourself uh, with your own pocketbook. Um, and at one point, I guess two two years in or so, I could not hire good people. I could not. I mean, this was the height of the VC. You know, everybody hearing about these billion dollar uh, exits, and everyone was so excited that all of the direct to consumer people and a lot of uh, of people who were you know the real talent in tech, you could not get them to join a business that wasn't VC backed. So I would interview people. And we would talk about, you know, uh, you know, the business and the upside and you know, I'd be offering a very generous package and shares, et cetera, et cetera. And I found so many people who their last question, when I would say, well, do you have any questions? I think this is the one. And then they would say, well, are you VC backed? And I would say, no, I'm funding it myself from, you know, I've sold other businesses. And they would say, I'm not interested. 
it's the same thing in filmmaking. If it's not, it doesn't matter how rich you are. If you're not studio backed, no, yeah. no one will play. So I role. went out, yeah. and as it turned out, one of the school dads happened to be the general counsel of one of the well, I'd say best and also um, most successful venture firms, which is called Index. They're British, and oh, of course, also yeah, have, no, no, I know, yeah, yeah. There was a big article I think about Danny in the in Forbes yesterday. Um, and how smart he is, and also how supportive he is. And so he said, this school dad said, look, my boss keeps hounding me to meet you because I had started Beauty Power already and it was, you know, in the press and everybody was joining. And and I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe this time I should go see what this VC backing is all about. You know, let's try it. Let's see what it's like to have a partner. I'd never had a business partner who put money into a business that I had, had built before. And you know, new experience. I'm probably the oldest first time VC backed woman circulating out there, <laughs> but it's been fun to learn. And actually it is nice. They've helped tremendously with being able to find the right people at those senior executive levels. Also that tech talent has sort of opened up. It's like, oh, you're backed by index. Okay. We'll get the, the great growth marketing person and we'll get the great COO. And, you know, it, it's a stamp of uh, approval, I guess, in a way. So yes, we've, we've done two rounds. The other thing I think, which never occurred to me until I read a piece by Scott Galloway, is that one of the worst things that often happens to very brilliant ideas is they get an overinflated stock market valuation. Yes. Now, you'd think that having a huge stock market valuation would be wonderful news. What yeah. it then forces you to do is develop a strategy to justify that valuation. Yes. Which is either deranged or actually completely contrary to what the brand should be about. Or to and hire you know, too many people thinking, you should be doing everything. When and you can see that you really in Uber, to... because the original yes. name Uber was, of course, a premium car service, not really a taxi service at all. It was a kind of premium executive car service, hence Uber. And then their valuation forced them basically to posit that you have to have driverless taxis in order for them to justify their capitalization. <laughs> okay. and, and, uh, at that point, you actually don't have any freedom to maneuver. And you uh, make and, all the wrong decisions. And you, Yeah. Yes, because you've got that pressure to be who they say you are, whether or not it's right. I think I'm a more uh, a more Jim Collins type. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. Oh, fantastic. You're going to get a new sign-up as someone who has a wife and two daughters aged 21. They're twins. Oh, is that um, why you were asking about the family yeah, membership? Exactly. That's why, exactly yes. why I was asking about the family membership, because I can see... I can see the combined savings here being spectacular. Thousands. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And you should get in there before Christmas. Uh, yeah, because, that's a very good yes, idea. But we're also, so we still have historical, we've got limits still on our British members. However, it's a huge limit and we're lifting them in January. So if you do go, go for an annual membership. They'll be able to shop like wild people. And then in January, all the limits will be lifted. So they don't have to worry about what they see as a limit at the moment because it does, it won't exist in January. I cut my teeth in marketing and working on American Express. And I always thought they got so much right because there's a wonderful behavioral model of what people care about, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, or reciprocation, you might call it, and fairness. Yeah, fairness. But American, American Press got the status thing absolutely right. The, the, the member since on the card was a little piece of genius. You know, it just said, we know how long you've been with us. That's all it needed to say. And funnily enough, we did the same thing with British Airways with lifetime tier points. It used to be your tier points went back to zero every year. And so people felt, well, as far as BA knows, I'm just some sort of tourist. I've been flying them with, you know, for 15 years. But with tier points zero, you felt that on their database, you appeared somewhere as kind of like random backpacker, you know. And so the lifetime tier points or the American Express member since thing is, a, is one of those 
little pieces of psychological genius which cost nothing but mean so much, I think. Yes, I think so too. Yeah, and we've been, <laughs> with our terrible tech system, we've been trying to get member since just somewhere in their interface, just so they know that we know who they are and that exactly. they've been supporting that's, that's us for so long. It's that reciprocated. I always make the point to, you know, to utilities that, you know, I would, I'm willing to bet that 50% of your letters of complaint start with a sentence like, I have been a customer of yours. For, yeah. yeah, for so long. Imagine my sense of outrage and, you know, and so now I think yeah. this is... And I, I, listen, I respond to a lot of those. We, we do get it wrong sometimes, right? Because, of course, you will at, at volume. And, of course, we're we're trying to institute AI because we are giving Cartier service for IKEA prices. <laughs> so it is difficult to, you know, continually staff customer service people. And so we do have AI helping people track their packages, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes it goes wrong. Um, but when I see it, I always respond to them myself and uh, and make sure that they know how much we value you know, all those people who've been here for such a long time. It's a, a real pleasure. I literally started the day walking down the street with my luggage because I'm headed to the airport tonight, crossed the street, and I was about to cross the street to grab my Addison Lee. And a woman, I was, I had a, my beauty pie bag, and a woman ran up behind me and said, oh, Are you Marcia Kilgore? Oh, I saw the, I saw the beauty pie bag, and, and I turned to look at her. She was incredibly stylish, looked maybe Italian, gorgeous, glowing skin. And I thought, yeah, so you remember? And she said, I use everything. And, everything. Oh, wonderful. And then, and then she hugged me. Oh, it's like, what fantastic. a way, if I could start my day every day with having a customer find me on the street and give me a hug because they can indulge themselves without any guilt, right? And have this wonderful experience and not feel like they've had the wool pull over their eyes and, and look fabulous. Wow, it's in, you know, incredible for me. So it's very inspiring and motivating to be able to do something this happiness inducing for so many people. So a final question, I suppose, what's your big focus for 2023? That's a very good question to ask at this point in the year. Sure, I think we are, um, we're retrenching. We like to do this yearly. Just look at the business, look at what's changed in the marketplace, what works and what doesn't work, what we think because of the recession, what will be the key areas um, that we should spend less time on, right? And then spend more time on. We always make a list of what are we going to do and what are we not going to do this year? And then we all sign up to it. I think that's super important. We're going to double down on community. We do very, very well with live shopping. People love to have a product described or demonstrated. It's, you know, QVC, but on Instagram? Absolutely. No, I, I've, I've always thought that, I mean, actually, you know, someone jokingly said that in marketing terms, the two big lessons, everybody's had a kind of crash course in Zoom and everybody's had a crash course in QR code. Yes. As a consequence of the pandemic. Absolutely. Um, but one of the things that annoys me is everybody talking about the metaverse. Yes. When my argument is, look, we already have human to human video conferencing suddenly at our disposal. Shouldn't we be talking about that a bit more? Uh, you know, because I don't think our conversation here would have been improved if we were both avatars with no legs. I might have looked better. <laughs> no, I don't have very much. <laughs> my eyelashes would have been longer. My cheekbones would have been like more no, no, sculpted. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think that's a problem, uh, genuinely. But this is uh, this has been absolutely wonderful. I'm hugely enthused. And I'd just like to say, um, well, I, actually, I have to say congratulations because I speak to a lot of people on the podcast who've had one great idea. And, you know, few enough people have one great idea and execute it successfully. But your serial success is really, really fantastic. You know, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to On Brand with Alf and Rory Sutherland. 
If you want to do business with Beauty Pie or any other brand in the beauty sector, contact the ALF Insight team on their website. That's www.alfinsight.com. Once again, that's www.alfinsight.com. You can also find the link in the episode description. This series is produced and edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. So to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then give us a like. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.